this first chapter that we're going to work through together sets the scene for the rest of the book. Uh, it introduces the big themes that we're going to look at. It introduces all the key players. And so we're going to read together. It also gives us some real key context for the rest of the book. And so it's important for our understanding. So the way we're going to do this today, rather than read it all through in one chunk, uh, we're going to kind of read and pause as we go and unpack it piece by piece. So uh, if you've got a Bible with you, why don't you turn to Daniel chapter 1, uh, and we're going to read together from verse 1. If you don't have one, there are some on the table at the back. Feel free to grab one, and also the words are going to come up on the screen for you to read along. So we read together from uh, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. This opening to the book is, is tragic. If, if we understand the context, then we read this, and the, the initial audience, the first people who would have recounted this story and read this book, would have wept. The, the first thing we read is that God's people, those who he's promised to be with, that they would be his people and he would be their God, he's brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and into the promised land, and now we find they're conquered in battle by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar comes, and they, this is actually the first of a couple of military victories for the Babylonians over the Israelites, but on this occasion, uh, he besieged them, uh, and doesn't finish the job, he comes back to do that later, but at this point, he takes some artifacts from the house of God. He takes control of their king, sets him up as a kind of puppet leader, and he captures their most promising young leaders, the brightest and the best of the people of God, and he takes them away in captivity. The temple's raided, things taken and placed in the temple of pagan gods, sending a clear message. Your God is weak and powerless. He couldn't protect you from our invasion. And we've taken off the things you used to worship him. And we've placed them in our gods. And their pro most promising future leaders were taken away to serve the king of Babylon. This is, this is like a heartbreaking picture. But it's also very smart from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective... See, he's having won this victory, undermined their God. So God's weak, he can't protect you. 
taking away the most promising young leaders is from a human's perspective absolute genius because the, the best way to change culture at a macro level is through educating the next generation if you can capture the hearts and minds of the, the next generation, if you can immerse them in a worldview and ideology of your choosing that you want to perpetuate, then actually your job is done because they grow up and they will be the future lawmakers and leaders and teachers who will continue to perpetuate what you have taught them. And so what's going on here that we have to understand at the start is that the Babylonians have taken these young leaders and their intention is to plan to squeeze Daniel and his friends into their mold. Their plan is to try and squeeze Daniel and his friends into Babylonian life. They want to assimilate them into Babylonian culture so thoroughly that they will take that and export it back to their people. The way they're going to do it is they're going to seek to change their worldview. They're going to seek to change their identity, their sense of identity of who they are. And they're going to seek to change the object of their worship. And those are the things that we're going to look at today because I think as we unpack and look at those things, we recognise that they are precisely the same things that we struggle with today. As Christians, as those who seek to find our identity in God and in who he says we are, and our purpose and meaning in that, and our worldview informed by scripture, actually we find that the world we live in, just like Nebuchadnezzar was doing in 600 years BC with Daniel and his friends, the world would seek to, to squeeze us into its mould, and it would seek to change our worldview. Speak to our identity, tell us who we are and why we're here. And change the object of our worship. So we're going to unpack those things. But before we do, we first need to notice a really important thing that comes up in verse 2. And that's going to keep coming up in this chapter and indeed keep coming up in this book. And that's that in verse 2 we read something interesting because it looks for all the world at this point like it's a tragic loss. And like Nebuchadnezzar is holding all the cards, doesn't it? Like we read it and we just think, like Nebuchadnezzar is the one in control here. He's holding all the cards. But we read in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. See, we get a peek behind the curtain of what's really going on here. We think Nebuchadnezzar's come in and he's had his wicked way with the people of God. And, and in verse 2, we just get this peek behind the curse that says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hands. God was sovereign over these events. He was in control of it. He permitted it to happen. Because actually the big picture, and we have the, the joy of hindsight here, the big picture that we can look back on is that God used this exile, this loss to draw his people back to himself to cause them to actually return to worship him for for generations at this point in their history god's people had been worshiping the idols of other nations 
that they thought would kind of help them. So they worshipped the Asherah that would provide them fruitful crops. They worshipped the Baals. Now, that was for other reasons that I'm not going to get into, but um, apparently it was quite appealing to worship them because of the way they were worshipped. Um, but for generations, God's people have worshipped false gods, and God had repeatedly called them back to himself. Come back to me. And they failed to do so, and so eventually they're taken captive. We were created for a relationship with him. We were made for worship, and they'd turned away from him. Successive kings and generations had walked away from him. And this exile, this time in captivity that to, to us on the surface looks like disaster was actually the kindness of God. Because eventually, after about 70 years, when they returned to their own land, they, as a nation, turned back to God. They rebuilt the temple. And actually, never again, as a whole nation, did they turn and worship the gods of the land surrounding them. Never again did they worship Baal or Asherah. They were faithful to God. They weren't perfect. But this was a huge thing. God used this time to purify his people and draw them back to him. Things weren't spiralling out of control when Nebuchadnezzar besieged them, no matter how it might have felt to Daniel and the others. God was in control. And whatever's going on for you today, I want to encourage you that you can trust God. That his purposes will come to pass. That if you are in Christ, that in every moment he is working for your good. So against that background, with that in mind, let's see how the Babylonians sought to, to oppress Daniel and his friends into their culture. And let's see how Daniel and the others responded and how God was at work in all of it. So the first thing they, they plan on doing with Daniel and his friends as they get them to... is they plan on changing their worldview through education. They're going to be educated. So we read... This is what they were going to do. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. What they're wanting to do here is to get them in and say, forget everything you learned growing up. Forget everything you think you know about the world and the way it works. Forget everything you think you know about God. Forget everything you think you know about what's right and wrong, about morality and ethics. Forget everything that God's law would tell you about the world and your purpose and how to live in this world. Let us teach you. And in many ways, actually, we are in a similar situation to Daniel and his friends today. Our education and media give us a worldview. And actually, it's a worldview that increasingly says that what the Bible has to say is irrelevant and outdated. We're so entrenched, as Daniel and his friends now were, in 
the surrounding culture and prevailing worldview that's communicated to us through schools and universities and media, that actually it requires real, careful, deliberate thought to see what we're being fed. To actually step back and say, what are we learning through this about the world and how it works and our place in it? What are we learning about ethics and morality and what's truly important? We need to take a step back and think about what are we believing and where has this come from? Where are we getting our understanding of ethics and morality? Is it a godly and biblical worldview or not? And, and it's not that as Christians we should ignore education or pull our children out of school, okay? I'm not like just about to launch into a home education like rant, like every faithful Christian should homeschool their children. Like I just, for some people that's the right thing to do, but I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, okay? We don't pull back from education, we don't refuse to partake in it, we don't try and hide our children away or hide ourselves away from what's taught. But our foundation must be scripture as Christians. And we must take time to, to compare and to work through is, is what we're being taught and what we're learning consistent with and line up with what the Bible has to say or is it in conflict? And if it's in conflict, then we go with scripture. How did Daniel and his friends handle it? Well, they didn't refuse to go to lessons. And as we'll see as they go through the series though, although they went through this education system, they held on to their conviction. And they held on to what they knew to be true about their creator and his creation. And at the end of their time, we read this about them from verse 17, we read this. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded they should be brought in, so that's after the three years of education, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. They were chosen out of everyone because of their learning. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. He served them. As a result of this, for a long time, 70 years later, he served in the court of the king as a man of learning and wisdom and understanding. Daniel and his friends were diligent in their studies, but they didn't neglect or forget what they knew of God, what they knew from his word, what they learned growing up in the law of the Lord. They held on to it. But this wisdom and understanding wasn't just the product of learning or hard work. Because we get that phrase again, God gave. And if you notice that as we read, it says God gave them learning and wisdom. Where the others relied purely on their Babylonian education, 
these men had wisdom from God. Yes, they were well schooled and they exercised discernment as they went through their education of what to accept and reject. But it was God who gave them wisdom. It's so important that we see that. And my prayer for us is that we would receive that same kind of supernatural wisdom from God in life. That we would be those who have wisdom from God. But as much as I pray it, I also think it's important that we recognise God has already given us, by His Spirit, wisdom in His Word, in Scripture. We believe that the Bible is, is breathed out by God for our benefit, for our growth, for training us in righteousness, for teaching us how to live in this world. And so we already have incredible wisdom from God. Let's make use of it, hey? The Bible, as God's word, speaks with incredible power and authority into every arena of life. That's not going to tell you how to write that computer program at work, all right? It's not going to tell you how to conduct that experiment in the lab, Mike. I'm sorry, like, it's just, but you're a genius chemist anyway. No, I'm not. <laughs> you are. It's not going to give you a step-by-step -step for how to coach that client or handle that challenging team member. But it will give you principles about how to go about your work, about how to engage with others, about how to interact with colleagues. It will teach you and point you at what should motivate your labours, what should drive you in the way you work. It will show you what real success looks like. It will assure you of where your worth rests. Not in your accomplishments, but in what Christ has already done on your behalf. It will teach you how to deal with conflict in love. It will give you an ethical framework that will certainly impact how you go about your work, even if it doesn't give you the nuts and bolts of exactly how to do it. This is godly wisdom. Let's use it. Education. Do you know what the world's trying to teach you and how that plays and what scripture has to say? It's important that we do. Daniel and his friends learned that. We've got to make sure we do too. That we're not squeezed into the world's mould unthinkingly. The next thing was about redefining their identity. Identity is so important. Who are you? Where does your worth come from? Where's your value found? What are you here for? Amongst other things, in trying to shape their identity, they were given new names. Now, in a society and in a culture like ours, that seems kind of weird because names, we don't tend to talk that much about what our names mean. Unless it's Will. And, uh, We've talked a couple of times about his given name. It's just, it just means Friday. Because <laughs> he was born on a Friday. <laughs> and so in Ghana, names are given very pragmatically for a reason. They say something about who you are, where you were born, where you were born. 
But in our society, not so much. But for these guys, names were hugely, hugely important. And all their names express something of who they were and how they related to God. The Daniel meant Elohim, or, or God, the living God, is my judge. Daniel came to Babylon with a sense of identity that said, I'm living before God. He's my judge. Not people, but God. But they changed his name. Belteshazzar. And it means may Bel protect his life. Bel was one of the Babylonian idols that they worshipped. They sought to reframe his identity. Hananiah, but Yahweh, or the Lord, is gracious. Changed it to Shadrach, which means Aku is exalted. Aku is another Babylonian idol. Mishael means who is what Elohim is, or who is what the living God is. Like who can compare to God? They changed his name to Meshach, who is what Aku is. They're trying to reframe their identity, how they think about themselves, how they relate to God. Azariah, the Lord is my helper, changed his name to Abednego. The servant of Nebo, yet another Babylonian idol. This renaming was a, a deliberate act to take God out of the equation when it came to how they viewed themselves and who they were. So we're going to tell you who you are and what you're here for. And just like Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, 600 BC, secular 21st century, wants to do exactly the same for us. 21st century Britain seeks to redefine our identity and remove God from the equation. We're just the result of a cosmic accident. No intelligent design or creative intent, no purpose. Richard Dawkins, it's about DNA. We're just dancing to the tune of our DNA. Blind, pitiless indifference. Worldly wisdom increasingly encourages to look inside to our feelings and thoughts for our sense of identity, of who we are, to discover our authentic self. Look inside. How do you feel about that? Discover your authentic self and and along with that, our bodies are increasingly seen as kind of malleable shells, almost plastic in a sense, to be shaped and modified according to our preferences and desires. As our feelings become the thing that defines us. So often, it's that saying, I think, therefore I am. I think increasingly in society, the, the the tune that we're singing, that people believe and hold on to, is I feel, therefore I am. I feel this is the case. I feel like this. I, this is, I feel, therefore I am. But into the muddle, the Bible speaks with incredible clarity. We're created. You're not just produced by chance, we're created by God. 
created male and female in his image for his glory. Our identity is entirely wrapped up in our creator, in who he is and who he's called us to be. Remembering that people are made in the image of God rather than just a product of evolutionary chance imparts a dignity and a value to them. Changes how we view them, how we treat them. It's the foundation, actually, for human rights. We mustn't ever let that be stripped away. Don't let God be taken out of the equation when it comes to understanding your identity or anyone else's. It also reminds us why we're here. So we find in Scripture that we're created by God for God. <laughs> We're created to relate to him and to worship him for his glory. To worship him. And that's the last thing they sought to squeeze Daniel and his friends into their mold over. They want to change the object of their worship. From the Lord God to the many gods of Babylon. And, and in part they sought to do it through their stomachs to appeal to their appetites. We read earlier, right at the start in verse five, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine he drank. And you think, oh, that sounds really kind of him. Like, nice guy. He's gonna give them his food. Like, that's gotta be the good stuff, right? In a culture, and it was a culture, where royalty would eat the most incredible choices of food. You think about the best restaurant you've ever eaten in. I know some of you have been to some nice restaurants, but take it like up ten times. Like we're talking beyond multiple Michelin star level dining in the palace. And peasants, others, <laughs> well they would be fortunate if they ate. The king assigned them a daily portion of his food. This is a huge deal. It looks really generous of him. And perhaps it was. It looks like he wants the best for Daniel and his friends. And maybe he did. <laughs> but this was also food that was offered in worship to the gods of Babylon before it was served in the palace. This food was taken and offered as an act of worship before it was served to be eaten in the palace. It's also likely that the food included meats like pork that had been declared off limits for the Israelites. Eating this food would mean disobeying God and his laws would mean becoming unclean, it would mean sin, but it would also mean endorsing the worship of the Babylonian gods and in some way benefiting from worship of the pagan gods. In some respect, every meal eaten would be like an act of worship, an act of thanksgiving to the pagan gods to whom the food had been dedicated. Here, Daniel drew the line. 
he would go through the education, albeit asking God for wisdom. He would not rail against his renaming, although he never fully accepted it. And it's interesting that he never fully accepted it. He never took the identity the Babylonians tried to force on him. And actually later we'll read the king even calls him Daniel, calls him by his Hebrew name when he comes to check if he's okay in the lion's den. He didn't fight against the renaming, but they certainly didn't fully ever redefine his identity. But he would not break the law of God by eating the food that was forbidden and unclean. He would not partake in the worship of anyone or anything other than God. So we read from verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favour and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants' attendance. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days, and at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in the flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. <laughs> he didn't stage a big protest. He didn't rail against it. He didn't go to the king and say, look here you, I'm going to worship the God of Israel. I'm not going to eat your muck that's been sacrificed to us. He didn't make a big he didn't demand that everyone must stop eating it at once this food is unclean no one should eat it everyone should be like me he didn't do those things it's interesting instead he respectfully he respectfully asked to eat vegetables and water instead it's probably just worth noting this isn't a plug for veganism and that's why this is in this passage Actually, for Daniel, it wasn't like, oh, I'd rather just eat vegetables. It was a step of faith and trusting God. Like, I can't eat that stuff. Perhaps if they would give me just this simple, humble food, then God will sustain it. Respectfully ask for veggies. And as he did, as he stepped out in faith, I don't know if you noticed it in verse 9, there's another one. God gave. As he asked, that he might be able to do this. God gave him favour. Another moment of God's sovereign intervention. It looks again to all the world like the steward. The chief steward is in charge here. He's holding all the cards. Daniel's going to ask, would you give me permission? Just think, it was God who gave him favour with the steward and allowed this to happen. Now, if the official had refused and escalated things, I 
think it's safe to assume, based on what else we're going to read in the book about Daniel and the others, that Daniel would still have refused the food. He would have stood firm on that conviction and refused to worship anyone or anything other than God. Even if it meant imprisonment or being put to death. He would have accepted the consequences rather than turning away from God. Daniel was comfortable with it because he was confident that his future was ultimately in God's hands. He knew that it was God who gave. God who gave them into the hands of the Babylonians and God who gave him favour and God who gave the breath in his lungs and sustained his life. As we need to know this kind of security and confidence today. If you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, then your hope is secure. Your future is certain. The very, very worst, incredibly unlikely thing that anyone could do to you is take your life. Which you can't keep anyway. <laughs> and the reality is, is that though you may die, in Christ you live. <laughs> because he lives. Because he has risen, because he has conquered death, that all who hope in him will rise to be with him forever. That gives us incredible confidence, the most amazing hope. So like Daniel, we need to go around trying to pick a fight or stir things up where we don't need to. There are times where it's right and appropriate for us to speak up on issues. We don't go around picking a fight with everyone. We live at peace as far as we can. Don't even pick a fight with the steward. He just asks permission really politely. But we also refuse to compromise. And we accept the consequences of that. Knowing that ultimately our lives are in God's hands. And we can trust him. We need to note that as well as giving him favour with the steward, God met Daniel in this act of obedience. They didn't suffer from their sinful diet. Some people might be, that's because veggies and water is the best thing you could possibly put in your body. And maybe that's true. But I don't think Daniel probably knew that. They didn't suffer on their simple diet. In fact, they were in better health than all the rest. So much so that in the end, none of the youths got given food from the king's table. They all got taken away and they all got veggies and water. <laughs> none of them were given the food that had been offered in worship to the pagan gods. We've got to recognise that. This is interesting. As Daniel took a stand and as God came through, what happened? Daniel's personal stand for holiness had a positive impact of everyone who was around him. None of them ended up defiling themselves by what they ate. His obedience to God had a purifying influence on others. A ripple effect. As we come to a close, then, we find in the book of Daniel, even in this opening chapter, a compelling picture of a group of men who refused to be squeezed into the mould of surrounding culture, who remembered and worshipped God, and who lived according to his commands in the face of the most overwhelming opposition. 
drill those things we have a clear reminder that is, is going to be blasted out time and time again through this book that God is good and God is in control and that even when it looks like things are spiraling out of control and that all is lost God is at work for the good of those who love him and are according to his purposes that where the world would say God is dead or powerless to help Daniel resounds with a stunning declaration that our God is alive and active and mighty to save. Where the world would, would draw us to worship or devote ourselves to the pursuit of pleasure, money, sex and power, Daniel provides us a powerful reminder that the wisdom of God is better. That the one who provides our needs ultimately is the only one who is worthy of worship and the only one who can truly satisfy us. Where the world would say, forget what the Bible has to say. It's outdated. We've moved on. It's irrelevant. Daniel provides for us a powerful reminder that the wisdom of God far surpasses even the most brilliant human intellect. Daniel and his peers were ten times the others. Given the same education. Why? Because they need the wisdom of God. They need to know the wisdom of God in our lives. And where the world would seek to tell you who you are and why you're here. That Daniel serve as a reminder to us that our true identity is found in Christ the Lamb. We worship the one who made us in his image and for his glory. We're in many senses living in exile in 21st century Britain. If you're a Christian, this isn't really your home. And sometimes it feels like that. You feel a bit out of place. And we're not living for the same things as other people. But just like Daniel and his friends, we can flourish in exile. And not only that, we can make a difference to those around us. We can have a positive impact on those that we work with and we live near. As we live for the glory of God and the good of others, we benefit society. So don't cower away from the world. However tempting you might feel. When you feel like you're being squeezed into its mould and you feel the pressure to conform, don't close your eyes and ears and hope it all goes away. You won't. But instead, take heart. Have courage. Remember who you are and why you're here. Remember that the wisdom of God is higher than the wisdom of men. Drift deep of his word. As we read in Romans 12, let it do you good. We read this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't let the world squash you into its mould. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Can we do that? By knowing the wisdom of God. By asking his spirit to help us understand and apply it and live in the good of it. 
then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I pray for us.